welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have a sex therapist, licensed clinical social worker, and sex worker, Soleil, join us for a conversation about how structural oppression is embedded in psychotherapy. Together, we talk about burnout and therapy under capitalism, building a new world of connected healing, and how basic sex education can get you fired. Becca, are you going to come sit? Come sit while I record. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, this episode was hard, you know? I think that after recording with Soleil, I just felt so down. I mean, I felt seen in a lot of different ways, but I also just felt so down and frustrated about how therapy is reenacting other sorts of oppression. I think when we go into the field of psychology or any other healing profession, we want to help and we want to serve other people and we want to do good in the world. And it can be hard to think about the ways in which our healing practices are actually reenacting further oppression. And I think that's the reality we have to sit with in a lot of different things, right? Is that we are all privileged in some way, shape, or form and enacting harm on other people, whether we're aware of that or not. And that process of becoming aware of it can be really difficult and it can feel really painful as you start to see the ways in which something like therapy, right? It's this good practice, right? You're helping people is actually really rooted in colonial forms of oppression. So we're going to have the conversation about it. We're going to talk about it. And I think that's a really important piece because the awareness is step one. And if this is a conversation that we avoid, then we don't understand even that and hence further harm. So let's get into a little bit of the nitty gritty. And if you are a therapist yourself, I'm sure you will understand. I hope you feel seen in this episode. I see you in the burnout and the pain of this job and what that looks like. And if you're not a therapist, send this episode to your therapist friend or get some insider scoop on what it's like on the other side. Before I went down this path, I really didn't know what therapists, you know, day-to-day, how did they get paid, what was it like, all those sorts of pieces. So I think it's important to lift the veil on that as well and remind the world that therapists, again, and I've said this multiple times on the podcast, are humans who come with their own bias, and that's really important, okay? We are not the sources of be-all and all truth, and that is frequently what happens in the society where once you get that sort of label, people look to you in this way of having knowledge. And it is true, we go through education, we go through so much training, but that education and training is based in very colonial, patriarchal forms of knowledge. So, I mean, first off, can we just talk about like even Maslow's hierarchy of needs? If you're in the field of psychology, you're going to know what I'm talking about. He has this sort of pyramid. And at the top, the highest form of development that you could do, y'all, is individual self-expression. Okay, we got to talk about that. We... (laughs) 
What is more of a Western idea than that the highest thing we can do in our lifetime is achieve individuality rather than community connection and service? What? Like, that is just like a small drop of the ways that the field of psychology is often reenacting these harmful notions of what it means to be self-actualized. And when I'm in my family systems class and my professor begins to talk about what a real relationship is, which is one that you're married and living together in a home, yeah, I've got problems with that. Who says that a real relationship is the one that you're married to, the one that you live? I mean, talk about the relationship escalator. At this point, I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you know what I'm talking about. But the reality is the field of psychology and what is taught in these classes does not. So maybe your therapist does not, right? These are the ways in which we can reenact harm, okay, through this system. And we have to be committed to undoing the oppression. And that looks like both acknowledging the ways in which therapy is a beautiful healing practice, one that can allow for so much transformation and so much good in the world. And also it is one that can do harm and reenact oppression. And we can hold both. One important way that we can have a critical paradigm shift is looking at therapy through companionship. At the end of the day, I am companioning with my clients and joining them in this journey of unpacking their story and navigating survival under these systems of oppression and finding pleasure under these systems, right? And I'm going to join them in that with my services, my humanness, my relationality, and all of that then is being humble and honest about the ways that we're not experts in life and what it means to be quote-unquote normal, all that sort of stuff. We really get into this in today's episode, and I think an important piece to remember is that we have to dream of a new future. We have to keep thinking and dreaming of spaces of how we can have maybe a more socialist access to therapy and these other sorts of resources, ways that don't further perpetuate colonial harm and replicate capitalist frameworks. I know we have to survive while in that, and so there is ways that we can do that, but also let's keep dreaming of what this other world is going to look like. Maybe a world that will transpire beyond our lifetimes for future generations, but we are a part of changing that movement. And I do believe, truly believe, that another world is possible and that collectively we can find our way towards that world. So with that... I invite you to give a hug to your therapist friends and any other healers that you know because at the end of the day, we are sitting at a space of trauma. There is a resource I linked below called Decolonizing Healthcare, and it has this beautiful chart that talks about all the various pieces of supremacy and colonization and all these other pieces under capitalism that lead to large amounts of trauma and your therapist and all the healers get placed into that one slot there to try and heal all of these large systems of oppression, which is impossible. We can give skills, we can sit with, but at the end of the day, these systems of oppression are going to keep going and it is 
problematic if we come to a queer client who is anxious about stepping out into the world and give them anxiety and say something is wrong with you and don't take that larger step to say something is wrong with a society that makes it unsafe for you to be your authentic self. This is something that really pissed me off. There was a New York Times article that talked about kids being anxious to go to school and it was like the kids these days are having higher anxiety and are no-showing to classes, yada, yada, yada. Y'all, there wasn't a single mention of school shootings. Kids are anxious to go to school. It's their fault. They have anxiety. What's wrong with them? Okay, when the news every other day is hitting on another mass school shooting, how are we not taking that into context in articles like that and places like the therapy room and diagnostics? If we are not addressing these factors, we are reenacting harm by placing the diagnosis, the blame onto the individual without looking at these larger systems of oppression that are all affecting us and even the ones in which I, you, anyone with privilege, and we all have privilege in different ways, are reenacting on one another. So it's important to slow down and have conversations like these that dream of ways that we can build that new future because, again, I really do believe that collectively we can come to a new space with all of this. And dear listener, I will be with you in this space every Wednesday tuning in to have these difficult conversations to dream of a new world of how we could be in connection with one another and a world where more space is allowed for us to be our authentic self, a world where more pleasure is possible and where basic sex education conversations will not get you fired. I hope that you enjoy today's episode and tune in. So how would you introduce yourself to the guest who has never heard you and what you're about? I tend to always need it kind of, I like having a daddy or somebody or a, 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 someone to structure. I'll be your daddy today. <laughs> structure vehicle. Yes. Well, thank you for having me here. I'm glad to be in this conversation. Um, I am, uh, I'm currently going by Soleil. That is the name I'm, I feel aligned with. Formerly Angie. Uh, I've been a clinical social worker for 20 years. Um, sex therapist for 10 been doing sex work for 15, been doing sex education, facilitation, community engagement, community building, activism, and sex-related spaces for about 10 years as well. And overall, a sex weirdo in the sense that I grew up fundamentalist Christian and had, didn't have any access to my pleasure and then spent most of the last 15 years trying to learn how to be a sexual being, how to be in my body, how to heal yes. trauma, how to connect to my own expression and my own identity which a lot of it happened through queer spaces, kink spaces, non-monogamy, um, sex work, um, all, all moving towards what it means to be a liberated being in a body that we deserve to have total autonomy over. We deserve to have rights to access every part of our bodies in any way we might, we might see fit, whether that's for commerce or for pleasure or for play or for creativity or expression, that it is our, our tool that we've been given to function in without choice and yet have to navigate how to do it. And I, mm-hmm. I, I tend to be folks who meet me now say that I'm maybe one of the most real and unfiltered humans they meet. Cause I don't have much, like I give very, very, very little fucks. My nihilism right now takes the form of um, nihilistic optimism where I'm mm-hmm. like being my fullest self and 
awaiting the end of the world. And it feels good to like be more um, grounded and connected to being my best version of me and helping other people to like fight to be, to, to exist, to exist fully, especially in sexual beings in their current space. So I think interestingly, like we, we talked a little bit prior to this, I don't know where you're going to edit the conversation, but what it would mean to talk a little bit about my clinical journey and like how yeah. I'm still even roughly tangentially connected to clinical spaces, even though I'm the most radical therapist people could ever work with. Wow, um, I love that. And yeah, kind of how I got here and what I'm doing now. Does that feel yeah. like? Yeah, let's do it. I, I actually worked on this this post and I, I'm really good at making content and never publishing it. So, you know, I'm sure at some point somebody will see this content. Um, but I worked on this post about how I've been a sex worker since I was a child and that we are when you are a femme identified person growing up in conservative Christian fundamentalist or like conservative families and communities. Um, and this is probably would apply internationally. I just don't have as much like direct lived experience in that space. But um, you are trained to be a service of service to everyone around you. And whether that's your body, your expression, your identity, your your image, your every single part of me was coerced and controlled from mm. the minute I was born and put into these tiny boxes and exploited. So whether I was um, actually being trafficked, if we're going to use that language, or I was just, you know, a being being dressed up and told what to do, I've been um, engaging in in sexual commerce since I was a child and, and used as a tool. And so I think in some ways, like um, whether that was erotic labor or emotional labor, that's the work I've been trained to do since mm-hmm. I was very young in my families and in and then I was in a fundamentalist Christian space um, where I was, it was very, very distinctly trained. This is how you will perform, how you will exist. Yeah. In that Christian space, I already was very, you know, easily adept to like, I am everyone's social worker and therapist. Mm. So that was already my identity. And then in the Christian space, they decided I was going to be a social worker um, in terms of my career so that I could do mission work. I was going on mission trips all over the world. And they, they decided I would go to college to like do evangelism, proselytizing in college spaces by getting a social work degree. So even though I was like making weird art and really loved art, I couldn't do these things I wanted. I was sort of like dictated to be on this path to do social Mm. work. And then I was like leading Bible studies and being, you know, luckily, unluckily, my first social work job was uh, um, uh, working in child welfare systems, doing child abuse protection and removing kids from their homes as like a 22 year old white girl in the Midwest who didn't have have know anything about kids or families and mostly in like communities of color, which is like so toxic and harmful and like really devastating to those communities. And I like Mm. have deep, sadness about having played that role but I did I did that role like related to that role for 10 years and in growing in that role I mostly learned that everything was bullshit in the context of using systems to oppress and control and coerce people and using them to decide who is safe and who can have their children and what is right and that it was all conformity to white white, white supremacy and conformity to classism and racism and and sexism and I was also doing that work in my own body in my own life um, as I was in this cult still and, and in, a, in an arranged marriage while I'm working as a social worker. Well, so, luckily on the personal level, I had these fucking great coworkers who were like, hey girl, you're in a piece of relationship. And like, while I'm like doing domestic violence work with clients, they're like, that's like here. And so I first time, like, I had this beautiful coworker who like would like take me out. It's the first time I ever like went out to a bar and like got dressed up and put on uh, makeup. Like, like uh, this like person like, when I was 25 who like helped yeah. me be a person. So like in, in the transition from like, both understanding how like the clinical systems were really fucked up from a very early age. Like I, it always felt like this was not in alignment. Like mm-hmm. I'm a white girl in the Midwest who's really Christian, yet I still felt like, A, there's no truth when it comes to Jesus. Like there's no right way to be. And there's no truth when it comes to well-being in the world, like one way of being. And so I was always like 
I don't understand how people have decided there is one way to be and why yeah. we have now are going to like force people using systems to create that. And I, and I couldn't understand how social workers could actually do that work mm. and like stay in that work. And like, mm. I think this all the time actually about therapists now where I'm like, how do you tell people that they are crazy when they're responding to a really fucked up, broken system that's coercing and controlling and harming them? How do you perpetuate every day that this is your, this is your diagnosis and I'm going to give you coping skills for the next five years for this diagnosis? Like, how do you survive in that? Like, how do you ethically, like, I'm sure you have this experience, though, in, in training. Well, that's why I tell them. I'm like, the system's messed up. You shouldn't have to be working three jobs and then having anxiety because you don't have any time for right. yourself because you can't afford your home, right? Like, right. hold on. It's not you. That's the system there. Yeah. How many therapists, like, don't do that? Yeah. I had this conversation with a therapist. Actually, I was living in Idaho briefly, and it was fucking toxic and terrible. But I met this like dude therapist who had a big practice there doing, I don't know what he was doing, fucking CBT or some fucking shit. And I asked him like, I asked him like, what is, what is his relationship to managing oppression and like, um, you yeah. know, the right, rights of like, marginalized identities in his, in his practice. And he was like, you know, I pretty much see the like, the, um, what was the term he used? The well-off well or something. He's like, I see, I see the people who are, you know, they're, they're, they're doing pretty well. They don't, it doesn't really, those things don't really affect them. And so mm. they're not really my clients. I just see the people who are like, struggling with you know some depression or some anxiety and I was like you don't every see single- it <laughs> yeah but like the fact that, that a therapist could be working in this field and like not have an awareness that like the marginalization or identities are going to impact every single client they encounter in some way even if they're the maybe the cause of the oppression it's still something impacting them yeah yeah well I think there's a lot of people like that I think that's just the reality is that a lot of people don't see what you and I are yeah. talking about and that's part of right. why I hope this podcast can do that. I hope these conversations can do that just to be expanding the awareness right. of the reality that, yeah, we are fish living in the water of oppression. Totally. All of us. Yeah, and, no, and, no, and no one is free of that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. And so being able to help people see that because it's so tricky, though, because to get insurance coverage for someone who can't afford and this is with people who even can't afford insurance. Right. But to do that, you have to diagnose someone with something. You know, but like, I think that's where at least I'm trying to challenge it of like sitting with someone and saying, you know, like what diagnosis feels comfortable to you? This is how we get access to services. Let's talk about it. This is not a definition. This does not define you. There are other reasons why this is occurring, whether it's society, whether it's your early family relationships, whether it's the current relationships you're in. It is not you. It is not you. Right. Ugh. Well, and then I think that the question I always ask therapists, you know, I'm doing supervision for therapists now primarily. And and I ask this question, like, when you are giving information to a client about their mental illness, about their experience, about mm-hmm. their how to understand what's happening to them, how is it benefiting you to perpetuate that that information? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you thinking about the way that we stay in an ethical practice? We think about like our being rooted in ba- and boundaried in our ethics and values. Nothing we should be saying to a client should be for our benefit to perpetuate our ego, our identification in the career, our identification yeah. with where we're doing something that's valuable or important or we're useful. Like all the shit that like perpetuating the diagnostics, the the systems that are harmful within mental health is is about the therapist's sense of self, right? And so our ability to disconnect from that, to like disconnect from like this story we have about, I need to be doing a good job by following evidence-based practice, by giving them this diagnostic, by making them better, that like if we can disconnect from that, then there's this fucking transformation that can happen as the therapist to say, I mean, we're just fucking humans in the room with you and we're on this journey and let's like see where we go. Cause like, I don't know. And you don't know. And like, 
I somehow have a brain that can maybe help you with some things. And I got some ideas. I often joke that my therapist technique is like, I'm Sam from Lord of the Rings. And like the client is Frodo. And like, they got the ring, they got the plan, they got the like, the goals. I'm just like long, I got I got a map, I got some snacks, got some ideas. (laughs) But like, we're just fucking in it together. And like, we're going to this like, through the depths of Mordor, like we're fucking in it. And like, right. that's that's where like we can be transformational for clients where we're not, you're not needing to reinforce our power in the room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where I start to think about my work with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and this concept of the inner healer and being able to sit back mm-hmm. and support people in that work of bringing up what is coming up for them that they need to heal and holding that with right. them, right? Like, there's such a totally. sitting back of that experience of instead of let me talk totally. to you and direct you for this entire session, sitting back and yeah. supporting them to go where they want to go and then holding that in a safe container. But I, I think it's right. tricky, too, because there are obviously like clients that can be supported through, you know, basic things. I mean, I don't practice from a CBT lens, but like just basic thoughts of CBT that are helpful of like, let's challenge these thoughts. Uh, Let's use mindfulness to like ground in this and be able to connect back to the body and take a deep breath. And like, but those skills could be shared in a book, right? Like those skills can be shared in a workshop that can be on YouTube for everybody. Uh, My dream and hope is that we could have a future. And I think this is going to be on, be way beyond our future. But a world where people don't need a therapist anymore because our community has healed enough to hold one another. Totally. Yeah. And then think that it's your example. Like, and like, why don't we give it away for free? Like, give it all away. Like, here's, here's nothing, none of this, none of, none of this is privileged knowledge, right? Like, here's a bunch of tools. Like, there's CBT apps. Every Like, there's all, all the shit is like ideas, strategies for managing and coping. But the actual transformational stuff is within you. And yep. I always say, like, the reason that therapists even exist is because we lost community. Like we stopped being, we stopped being with each other. And so we needed to create therapists to have, so we had people to talk to. Clinical work didn't exist in most of human history. There wasn't like right. this person that was identified to be this thing for you. There are different versions of healers, but even those healers were sitting with you and listening to you vent about your problems all day. Like I think about this a lot when, when therapists will come to me as, super, as a supervisor and say, I've been seeing this client for like two years and we're just really stuck. And I was like, why the fuck are you seeing a client for two years? There's a, there's a difference between you need someone to talk to. You need you need you need emotional support. You need community. You need belonging. You need reflection. You need you need people that vibe with you. You don't need a therapist. You don't need somebody in a power dynamic that you're paying to be that community and emotional support for you. And if you're not making progress after you know six months in clinical work with somebody, it's probably not the right fit, and it's probably not helping. And you probably need other people in your life. <laughs> but like people like this illusion, right? That I can pay this person every week who's going to be unbiased and give me the support that I need. And I don't have to feel like I need to give them anything back. And I don't need to like have any weird relational dynamics. It's like, but we just need to get better at relationships mm-hmm. and better at having meaningful connections and community. Sorry, that yes. was a side tangent. No, it's fair. It's super fair. And I think I'm sitting with it because I'm someone who has been in therapy for the last five years. And I still, and I, I would say I've made a ton of progress. I would like to think. Yeah. So I, it hasn't been static, but it is something that I continue to do and enjoy as a like, special container as a special place for someone who has held my story for the last five years in a way of them trying to support me to be the best that I can. Yeah, could I and should I maybe be doing that in community? Yes. But do I also like the sanctity of a special container where I can just go and be held in that? But like, maybe you're right. Maybe it is that like, if I had like a deeper embedded community of being held and seen I'd be building those relationships with other people 
and I wouldn't need that one person. I think it's just I like to I like to unburden myself in the sanctity of that spiritual space. Totally. But I don't know. Yeah, that, that definitely isn't, definitely, yeah and it's certainly no judgment. And I, I'm, I'm a kind yeah. of a bossy bitch, which makes me, you know, either a really good dom or a really terrible therapist. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, it's, it's a space where like we, we want to figure out like what are, you know, I, I tell clients yeah. all the time, like know exactly what you want from this experience. And like mm-hmm. if you don't know what you want to, to like see change or see grow and, and shift, yeah. like we're not going to do a good job in this space. You're not ready for this experience. And I think kind of maybe coming full circle to like my clinical road, you know, having been in really toxic like systems roles, you know, both as social worker, as managers, as a trainer. Um, for foster parents, as a therapist for foster kiddos, as somebody running a group practice, running private practices, working in, I worked for online therapy company and worked for all the therapy apps. I worked for, um, you know, just recently left a job as a clinical director of a um, adolescent treatment center. Um, you know, we're having worked really intensely in formal systems. The, the constant experience I have is we are, in order for the systems to survive, for the people in the systems to survive financially, economically, in our current capitalist patriarchal oppressive structure, we have to cause harm to the people in those systems in order to perpetuate those that survival. And that's at every level. There's very there's very few therapy jobs where we're not we're not we're not engaging in exploitation. And so then it's the there's this like core difficulty for me too, right? Because therapists need to survive. We need to make money. We need to like have income too. But how do we not engage in in oppression in a way that is going to be perpetuating the thing that the very thing that we are trying to we we we, we idealize the idea that we we are creating something different and we are being something different and and changing systems from within is a great um vision does not happen very often very very like one percent of the time can you actually make a difference from within a toxic system if anything it's like we all stop working in them like i would love i would love to see therapists you know great example stop working for the therapy apps like they're super toxic uh stop working for systems that aren't working for the humans that we're trying to serve figure out a better way that we can survive and support each other part of it goes back to like we work in a we're in an industry where i think with this lot actually with sex work that any job that is that is a caretaking role whether it's therapy or nursing or teaching or sex work is not paid well enough to survive yeah because of the because of the patriarchy and yet you know if you're in marketing if you're in accounting if you're in law you can have crazy billable rates and companies pay that and it's like no big deal yeah, there's a systemic shift, but it, but it's also like we have to separate ourselves from the relationship that we get to being important in the work enough to like try to change the system to not want to keep reinforcing it so we feel important. Right, which I think part of that means not diagnosing people when it's a problem of the system or a problem of their relational dynamics and other sorts of things that perpetuate this sort of need base. You need to come back to me because you have this problem and you got this diagnosis in this way. What I think is interesting, like as I'm trying to get out of the system, right, like offering coaching services and get outside of that system, like wouldn't the dream be to like charge the people who can afford that and then provide sliding scale for the rest? And then we don't have to do it in a system of therapy and we don't have to do it in a system of insurance. and We don't have to do it in that sort of way. But then that's still charging $300 a session. But for the people who could afford it, this is very like socialist trying to rework it or offering yeah. group dynamics that are more affordable. Like totally. I don't. I don't know what to do, but I want to get out of this system. Totally. That's a, that's a model that a lot of people are using where they'll have okay. a scale for, for folks who can and then yeah. charging other clients more. The kind of work that we want to be doing is not the kind of work that will pay us and the kind of yeah. work that nourishes us, that like feeds our soul to like, I want to I want to sit with someone in deep sexual trauma and work through like how to find their fantasy expression that is going to like use their trauma as a tool for integration. Like that's like yeah. my passion work is like, yeah. like 
kink through trauma work. But like the folks who want that, who need that work, who want to be on that journey with me can't afford it usually. Right. And they can't, or, or they can't afford to have access to that. And so I'm trying to think of other strategies. Like I'm trying to publish some, a bunch of free shit. I'm trying to do some streaming. I'm trying to find some other other ways to like give the thing that is really needed to people in a way that is um, as accessible as possible. Um, because none of this should be privileged knowledge. I know. Everyone should have access to it. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree. And I do still think that we need relationships. So that's the tricky part is like you could right. read all of the books in the world, which do form a sense of relationship, but you still need someone to look at you and be like, that was a good job that you did. Or maybe that's an area where we could push a little bit because the reality is the book is not dynamic. Like we still need relationships. And so like, totally. even if we put out all this free content, the podcast free content, right? Like that can only get someone so far until it's applicable to their life. I don't know. I've been sitting in this and feeling shitty about it left and right and not knowing what to do because you do have to make money in the society to survive, right. but also seeing this so directly of how it is the relationships that shape our sense of self and how we feel. And I am just one piece of that. And the reality is someone needs a full community that can hold right. them with that emotional well-being. Right. And that is what's going to transform them. So like even with the people that really want to do the work, the reality is like I am just one relationship. And through that work, at least through my own work with my therapist, I started to realize how my other relationships don't hold space for me like that, right? And so I slowly start to evolve and change and be like, OK, I'm going to close these down because it doesn't feel like this one. The reality is we should all be held in that. Yeah, I mean, personally, I like a lot of my life. I'm mostly doing sex work right now because I feel I feel better in the in the um, clear negotiation of my labor in sex work than I do in the exploitation of, of therapy. Because and, 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 and it's interesting, you know, like because therapists are so appalled by this distinction, but it's like. You know, I can go into a session with a client and I can say, this is the thing I can do. This is what this is. And I can be my fullest self. I can have all my thoughts, my feelings, my opinions. This is how I'm going to show up. I will you know, give a caveat. I'm, I'm, I do sex work in a pretty privileged position where I'm not doing street-based work. I'm not, I'm not feeling the same kind of threat of violence as some do. I do have multiple stalkers at times. I do have lots of online harassment at times. But there's it's not the same kind of threat that others. But like, I can, I can clearly negotiate. This is what I'm willing to do. This is what I want. This is what it's going to look like goodbye give me your this is this this is the rate and it's and it's a i know that i'm offering a valuable service and that commodity to this to this person that is really like meaningful and connected whereas in therapy there's often times where you're like i hear this from supervisees all the time they walk away from a from a session like was that helpful did i do the right thing and then they spend you know and then a client has a negative reaction and comes back and then they spend all this time in this kind of like machinations around you know am i fucking this up and it's like we're, you're not fucking it up. It's it's this is really hard work, and you're trying to fill the role of a community. You're trying to be all of those things for people that we can't we cannot be. And and I think that that speaks to like therapists that exist existing in the vacuum that we need the connection with community organizers and mutual aid organizations and groups that are doing the like how do we help people be in communities and learn to feel supported and cared for. But also, I see that I have some optimism that like in the uh, UGC, the user generated content world, that there's space for like moving into owning, our, owning all of our own content and um, distributing it in a way that is equitable and fair, moving out of a space where like we need to continue to feed a system that isn't serving us. And that, so I'm working into like a lot of like, I'm working on some like Web3, some cryptocurrency, like blockchain projects that will actually work on like user ownership of content and, and, and user ownership of our own voices, our own experiences, um, where we can create our own communities outside of that structure. That's just one strategy that is a potential. A lot of the money being made in the world right now is on user-generated content because most big companies are moving to influencer kind, like us making their marketing for them. Mm -hmm. And so 
if we were actually being paid well for all of that content and using it to improve relationships and well-being of the people that are consuming it and like having it be content that's actually like really rooted in like what humans are needing to connect and to grow. My dream is always like, I want to help everybody get better at sex and dating, yeah. everybody better relationships, better, yeah. better boundaries, yeah. better at consent and, and like using all those spaces to facilitate that. Like we're not going to eliminate the need for therapy, but we're, we're going to create more of a, we already see this in like the TikTok space, right? Like how many 12 year olds are giving relationship advice to each other and supporting each other. It's neat to see like this, a lot of people moving towards collective experience as mm-hmm. the anchor for information and knowledge sharing versus yeah. any kind of like expert space. Which I'm all for the the power of lived experience, right? And what that can teach you compared to what you learn in a textbook or what's or what you learn in a system, you know, getting a doctorate under something, right? Yeah. And I think I'm I'm, wondering, I'm curious, like, would you want to share what motivated you to first want to be in a helping role? Like was there something that kind oh, of like because yeah. in some way for me, my path was chosen for me, but I and I and I'm happy to be in it. But it was very much like I'm like, here's the thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was the first person in my family to go to college. So that was, I think, very murky. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I wanted to do something helping people. I just felt like that felt good. I didn't know what. Originally, I wanted to be a doctor of medicine. And I think that was part of the prestige of like, I'm going to be the first one to go to college and I'm going to become a doctor and I'm going to do the thing, you know? So then that's when I started working um, in a hospital and doing some research work and really getting to see what it's like to be a doctor and the 15 minutes that you get with a human in out here's your lab results here's some medication goodbye and uh, at the same time I was also volunteering as a sexual assault counselor so I would go to the ER and do one-on-one crisis counseling for individuals who would come to the ER to get services afterwards and just like felt such a radical shift between the ability to be with someone in that space compared to what you would do giving someone a lab value and then after that I just switched to psychology and I was like this is what I'm going to do I'm going to sit with people I'm going to help people and I think it's a part of why I'm so passionate like you right of like how do we help people on that whole spectrum of healing from you know the sexual trauma whether that be with your uh, whether that be through a act of violence or the societal act of violence that we all experience. I was someone who went through purity culture and fundamental Christianity as well. So I would call that a trauma. Um, And so whatever that is, I'm very passionate about helping people go from that to sexual pleasure and being in full liberation of that. And that's what I want to do. It sounds like what you want to do. And so that's where I really resonate. And how do we help people do that? Right. Yeah. When it's interesting, you said like, like this all ties back to this capitalism, like this, this work-related conversation, because people don't realize that the, the one of the things that's keeping us from sexual pleasure is our relationship to work, mm-hmm. and it's our relationship oh, yeah. to like to like production and to like yeah. cons- consumption and like feeding the system of like we are so exhausted by just trying to be every day and like and like survive and like you know. And then this is true in so many cities right now where like people can't afford to learn. I was doing this again. I, I got laid off from this or fired from this job for this toxic reason, which we could talk about. But I've been like job hunting again, um, if I was ever going to go back to clinical work, I'm like therapist, clinical director, supervisor, master's level, 10 years experience, therapist jobs, not even a hundred grand, like consistently like 80, 90, that like not even, and it's like, what is the hope then in this field that if like you can go, like there's always this, like I hear this from dude, actually male effects were clients of mine who were like CEOs will often be like, well, you just gotta, you just gotta work hard and it'll get better. And I'm like, that is not real. Like. Like the belief that men, men actually like, and I'll use men as a, you know, I don't like gender terminology, um, beings in power, 
will often reinforce this language, right? That like, if you just work harder, it will get better and you can hustle and like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And <laughs> it wasn't like, not how this world works. Yeah. And I give that example. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a brilliant human being who's worked really hard and has been at the highest level in my career. And I still can't survive without lots of other kinds of work. And the most money I ever make in like survival is sex work. It's, it's never actual clinical work. It's never the like, and when businesses succeed, I think of this a lot actually, like this is one of the solutions that therapists will say, this is not turned into a business consulting podcast. I'm um, about it. What are the things they're saying? They're like, well, you got to like start your own business and you got to just like, you got to hustle and create content and have all these like other income sources. Who has time to do therapy, write a book, do supervision? There's some people out there that are fucking miracle workers. But like when you're doing all those things, are you doing the kind of quality work and the alignment that you actually want to be doing? And even then you are selling something that may not be the actual thing you want to be engaging in. It's like you're trying to find this strategy to hustle a system that isn't actually the clinical work we're trying to do. And I didn't go into this work to be a business person hustling a system to try to like create clickbait content that's going to get like 50,000 view, 50, views. So, so some of it's useful, but a lot of it's not useful. A lot of it's like more harmful than good just because we need to survive. And it's like, we shouldn't have to play that game too when we're trying to like actively work at dismantling the system. Mm. Yeah. And when you do start that private practice, you know, what are you, you're making money off of the other clinicians right? That you are taking part of that pay from and that's how you're being able to get out of that system, right? And I think part of it, it just always drives me wild that like, so I was certified as a yoga instructor, right? And to teach a private yoga session, you could get upwards of $150 an hour. And right, that is also about what therapists are paid. And I'm just like, hold on a second, you're telling me five years of a doctorate and hours of clinical training gets the same as a 200-hour yoga teacher training, right? And the same thing with personal trainers, other sorts of, the, this whole system of what gets paid what for what. My dream is that everyone could have access to therapy for what is helpful, right? But like, also, how do you get paid appropriately for the amount of emotional labor and the amount of emotional turmoil right. that you go through being that container for people? Because this job totally. is not easy. It is not yeah. easy to hear everyone's pains and to sit with that and to go through like get emotional to go through like hearing so many sexual assault traumas and then you're just like oh i'm just gonna go about like my day's normal now after all of that you know like what are you supposed to do i see you it's really hard and like i i I say to the therapist especially new ones in this field like you cannot see more than five clients a day and stay alive you should not be seeing clients more than three days a week like we we can't we have to balance like you need days for rest you need days for other kinds of work you need days for creativity you need right. space you need space between sessions like we if you're you're seeing seven seven clients a day for seven days five days a week like we will hurt ourselves and and, yeah. and, and we don't and we don't do a good job we don't show up with the clients because this shit is really hard we are we, we are being we are the social net for every every other system like clients can't get into doctors they can't get right. into healers. They can sometimes get a therapy session because insurance will sometimes cover it. So we become that net for all of the, all of the like needs they have. And we can't be it. We cannot be that. And like, you can't be that. Right. Like, it doesn't mean that the client doesn't need that care. It just means that like, we, we're not responsible for holding the weight of the whole system. And if anything, it's like, we can have compassion with that client for the grief that we are, we are the person they're engaging with in that moment. And then like, how do we help them get more? My first strategy actually with survivor clients, do you want this? Kind of yeah, go for it. I'm here. Like, I'm here for it. Yeah. My first strategy is 
um, we're going to work on building other community for you. Like that's our first yeah. strategy before we're doing any of the trauma work. We're not diving in deeply into I any love of that. it. You're not telling me your story. We're not holding anything until you have other people because you leave here, you're here one, one hour a week. Right. That doesn't, that doesn't even scratch the surface of totally to like hold the, the depth of this work you're doing. And there's times when sometimes people can't wait and they just need to like, yeah, I, I, they're, they're so out activated. There. Yeah. But then we don't, we don't go through the story. So this is, this is, this is not turned into a trauma podcast. I, I'm going to tell folks who are new to the field, don't, we do not do trauma work and don't dive into the story. We do, we do titration of symptoms yes. um, initially. And so yes. what you're doing is just, how do you help with that, that, that activation, moving through the polynagal response stuff, you're yeah. moving through, how do we helping them decrease the intensity of that activation? before you're doing any storytelling because they can't they can and that's where like your ability to hold that container is less about you need to hold the whole story right and more that like you can you get to pace them effectively so yes. that they're not causing themselves more harm or harming you either yes that's what i've been learning is how to do pacing and like the importance of that before you because some people do just want to go there and you're just like hold on let's do you have grounding skills? Are you going to walk out of this room feeling so dysregulated that you don't come back? Totally. Sort of basic stuff. But I, I love even taking okay. it back and all, to a whole different level. Of, do you have community? Where is your community? Where is your support? Where are you going after this? Do you have enough people to talk about this besides me? Right. Okay. But it, it's so crazy as someone who's in the system. Like I was just interviewing for training spots next year and I decided to stay at the place I'm at because they're in a very different system than what the other places, one of the other places. 14 clients a week for two days on site, which means seven on seven back to back clients. And that's for someone who's in school. So you're not only just doing that, you're also balancing all of the demands of right. trying to get your schooling totally. and hours and your dissertation and blah, 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 blah. Which is like common. Like that's not any common. That's like, I mean, there's a, there's a place in, 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 in the city that I lived in that you had 90 clients starting out as, a, as, a, as an intern. You started out with, you had 90 clients in a public, in a, in a public mostly Medicaid, Medicare clients. And, and, and you had to fill every billable hour. Like if you, so you, you got, to, you, if you missed an hour, you were hustling to get a, get a client in that slot. It was this like, this wild. And it was, and, and being paid like, you know, 30 bucks an hour. And that's exactly the piece, getting paid that amount for the amount of pain that totally. you're sitting with and, and holding. Insane. Yes. Yeah. Insane. Well, one comment I wanted to make based on what you just shared too is like, but the pacing is really important and learning the titration of like, when do we go into activation? Um, but also there's, there's a piece of this that I think people really struggle with. Your, ther your therapist experience um, has to be rooted in your own presence with the client. And so like the minute that like we, therapists work really hard to hold the like, I'm put on my therapist hat today and this is, I'm a professional and I'm supposed to be these things. And, and when we don't notice our own activation, yeah. we aren't able to like stay and connect into our own bodies. Like the minute that I, I have a like feeling in session, I'm hitting pause. I'm hitting pause in the conversation. I'm hitting pause on myself. I'm hitting pause to say like, what's happening for me? Even if that's just like a, hey, can I have a second to a client? But the more integrated and grounded you are in doing your own personal work around being, the better work you're going to do. Because when you move past that, when you're, when you're just sort of like, when you're in the fit therapy factory, client after client after client, and you're dysregulated, you're disconnected. What the fuck are we even doing then? Why, what, why are we even there? Like what's, then we're just like, they should just be using a therapy app then. <laughs> but if, if the solution, if the solution is that, that we need to be at disconnected to survive, then this isn't the work that we want to be doing. And, and there's this opportunity to like, have it be better just by slowing down enough to say, even if you're having a hard day, like there's going to be days where you're not fucking there. And I just, in, we can be honest with the client. Like I think a lot about what do we tell a client about our experience mm -hmm. in, in, in an ethical way that doesn't make it about us. Yeah. And totally. we can be honest with our experience without making it, they're not holding space for you. You're just being real with like, how are we both coming to this space? And 
every other relationship, I think of this a lot with therapists, right? Every other relationship in your life, we tell people to do that. We teach people to do that. But somehow in the therapy context, we we become this robotic, like performative, because there's so much fear around like, what does being a professional mean? And it's, we will show up better for clients when we're real and authentic in our experience than we would ever be by being a disconnected therapist machine feeding CBT tools to them. Yes. This is why I love relational cultural theory. Yeah. So it talks so much about the importance of being connected in session and watching those moments when you do feel disconnected as either, yeah, something's coming up for me about maybe my own traumas, my own bias, or something has happened with the client and our sort of connection and being able to monitor that as the the key piece of what growth is. So I love that you're saying this because that's where I'm trying to come from too. And I think What's really great about that orientation is trying to take off the power dynamics of presuming that I know where this person needs to go or what's wrong with them. It's a collaborative thing. And and being able to just be authentic. That is a crucial part of the therapy, right? And authenticity within the frame of what's always best for the client, right? So like you said, like you can say, like, this is where I'm showing up today. And it's not that the person is caretaking for you. It doesn't go to the opposite direction where now it's like, can we talk about this, me and my pain? It's like, no, I'm just going to state that's where I'm at today. And we can honor that and continue forward as an authentic relationship with one another. And that's actually how you do the therapy. Totally. And, and, and that, that speaks to like, there's not many modalities that kind of give space for that. And it's like yeah. moving out of the, we need to stick to this, we need, we need a format and more about like, what are we actually trying to do here? And like most of the people, most people's difficulties that they come to therapy for are relational. Like something about their relationships with each other, with family, with their, yeah, with themselves, with their relationships. Like there's, and so our ability to like model what it's like to be in healthy relationship dynamics. And like, we often are their first healthier attachment relationship they yep. might be experiencing. Yep. And um, which might speak to your earlier conversation about why you're still in therapy for five years. Um, Hit me with like, my psychodynamic. <laughs> So like, right, we no. have this relationship and we like, we have, we build this attachment, we build this safety. Like the, the therapist becomes our totally. first person that's reflecting that back to us. And then we're like, oh, what does it mean to like have repair, have, have breaks, have a bad totally. day, have a, oh. my, some of my, my most transformative client sessions I ever had were clients when they were like, hey, you're on some fuck shit. Like, hey, you missed this. Like, hey, this like, and then that's what we fucking need when like we're in, we're in exchange. There's, it's like that, um, we think about this in kink a lot where like there's a dynamic energy feeding the system there's this tension of, of of energy whether you're whatever role you are dominant or submissive like you're, you're you're putting in energy to feed the system and then it's being received and fed back to you right feedback loop and therapy also has to be a feedback loop so if we're if clients are just dumping on us and i hear crazy stories of what therapists do sometimes from other clients that come to me and like sometimes i'm astounded but i've heard stories from clients of therapists who say nothing for an entire session besides like mm-hmm okay, well, I'll see you next week. That was great. Like no other words, no other words. Or, or therapists who will only do CBT who like, well, let's, which, which CBT, um, which thought dysfunction is that fall under? Okay, now let's do the thought restructuring. Like they, they won't do any other model besides like this. It's like, what are we even? Which is where I ask, like, what's that person? Like, what's the therapist level of comfortability with being in a relationship yeah. and being a human, right? right? That I think that right. if you are uncomfortable with that and this sort of, yeah communication, presence, authenticity. Do you know how much easier it is to be like, well, we're going to do a CBT uh, worksheet today and just lay it out right here and do that. But the reality totally. is that only gets you so far. That might stop those those anxious thoughts that might stop this and get you in some sort of movement. But the long-term relational attachment, my five years of therapy stuff of like learning how to push back with my therapist and go through ruptures and repairs and still be held yeah. in that, 
Yeah, totally. that is not on a worksheet. That is not on yeah. a worksheet. Totally. And the related stuff, like the how many therapists, their clients they hear talk about therapists that will be like directly like shaming or pathologizing of like them because it because it like in, impacts like their again like their view of themselves. And I mean, I, I come to this in the sex therapy all the time where clients come to me because I'm the most radical they can find on the internet and will validate you know any way that they are expressing themselves generally speaking. Um, but they'll kind of be and say like that you know therapists that have encouraged them like. I can't tell you how many times I hear of therapists who will encourage involuntary celibacy. Like one partner is like, I don't want to, I don't want to have sex anymore. And the therapist is like, well, you need to stay with your partner and preserve their relationship no matter what. Happens all the fucking time. Therapists like don't value sexual expression. Therapists that don't value, it's their own ideology. They need yeah. to preserve their vision of what a family is, what belonging is, what marriage is, what, yeah, what, yes. what like connection is and safety is. And it's like, until like the therapist, until we're willing to deconstruct all of our sense of what normative and right is we can't do good work with anybody like we're gonna we're, we're continuously like fucking this up and i mean really popular at therapist conferences just like yeah, telling everyone we don't need to say that like everything the gottman says is bullshit but like there is some space to say like what would it mean to like eliminate normativity like whether that's gender or neurodivergency or relational relational diversity like there is no normative normative normativity there is healthy there is meaningful, there is, there is connection, there's safety, there's, you know, pleasure. Mm-hmm. And the way that those things can look can fall into a million different configurations and connections and belonging and have historically in our, in our, in our, in human history. And yet we've somehow forgot about that in the last hundred years because of white supremacy and the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause it is exactly what you said of what the therapist views to be normal is what they're going to come mm-hmm. in and be like, well, First off, I don't think a therapist should be telling you you should be doing this. Let's let's get really clear on that, right? But like, no matter what, yeah. even if you're not blatantly be like you should stay in that relationship, it comes through in the bias of the questions that you ask in the totally. gentle direction that you're trying to lead them, and that is just a reality. And this is also where I'm like, damn, like I want to know what's my therapist's perspective on the world. What sort of relationships do you think are healthy? What sort of sex do you think is healthy? Are you kink shaming and I don't even know it? Do you know what I mean? And like it's coming through on these small little questions and the way you frame. Like I want your full bio. Otherwise, I don't feel safe Mm -hmm. to sit down with you personally. Yeah, totally. Again, you're not a cog in the machine. Like you're a human being that's having. So even if you try to be distant, it's it's interesting. Therapists that try to be distancing and like very professional, but then suddenly that goes out the window when it comes to sex and relationships. And then suddenly they have, there's all this personal bias that they like, oh, now I have an opinion about you. (laughs) But like, I didn't a minute ago when you were like struggling with systemic oppression. Like then I was just like, oh, that's really hard. Let's talk about a CBT strategy. Right. But the minute that it's relational, it's like, well, let's talk about why you should preserve your relationship. Right. Absolutely. And I think Part of that is related to the reality that we just don't talk about sex in our culture. At least as someone currently in training, I will say there has been no conversation about sexuality. There is no class on sex and relationships. There is no any of that. And so to be quite frank, there are many people who have gone through trainings and there are people in my classes who have never even heard of kink or non-monogamy. And so when they sit down with a client who comes from that, everything is going to flood out. Oh, you have a rape fantasy? Oh my God, something is going on there, right? Like so all of that just floods out because we don't talk about it. Totally. I would give, give every, anybody this test. You're a therapist, you're a therapist, clinical person in any regard. Look at your, look back at your curriculum. 99% of courses in clinical work have nothing sex and gender related. Well, they've, they've just nothing. started to add some like, we're like LGBT stuff, just even a, even a, like maybe one semester, one class, 
that almost nothing sex and gender related. So it's like, how do you, how do we like ignore this entire swath of like identities, totally beings, and then expect people to do a good job holding space for any of them in that, in that context. And then people don't want to get the help and training in it. One of the projects I want to just plug that I'm working on is a certification training therapists how to treat sex workers as clients. And it's a 12 week certification that we are going to be exhaustively going through. You're going to be getting, you're going to be getting sex work clients that we're going to be supervising you and facilitating and checking into the clients. Are you doing a good job? We're going to be giving um, exams. We're going to be doing a full assessment of you at the end. Like we're going to help you be a better fucking therapist so that you don't harm sex workers in your communities. I want every therapist organization to start requiring their, ther- their therapists to attend these kinds of programming. We, we will come to your actual, I will come to the APA and do sex work trainings. Um, everybody needs access to um, sex workers, specifically our marginalized identity that's completely, uh, completely eliminated from most conversations. So there's a little bit of queerness happening, a little bit around race happening, but almost nothing happening around sex work. And it is an identity trait. It is not just a um, a, wor- a choice of work that somebody had. Because once someone's a sex worker, it, it is an identity trait that stays with them forever and impacts every single part of their being in the same way that sex or race does. Mm-hmm. And I think the reality is it's more common these days, right? Especially yeah. with the tools like the internet to be able to share your content. Totally. I am so happy that you have the certification or doing this. And I get so pessimistic when I am going through my training and I realize that in the APA requirements for a, a psychologist, even a trauma class is not required. And like my school is one of only like four right. schools that has that as part of their curriculum. So I'm over that here like, we need to have, I know I'm over here like yeah. we need to have a class on sex. And I'm like, oh, like, fuck, like we don't even have a class on trauma. So maybe I need to lower my standards. It's kind of where I've been. Feeling. No, but what are they even <laughs> teaching? Like, what are we even like? I yeah, spent was... a month on the Rorschach. Okay. I spent a okay. month and a half on the Rorschach and how to interpret oh, someone based on what they say on an ink blot. Okay. Oh God. Like, like how much of that time could have been used to like, yeah, learn something more useful about like humans and experiences. Like, so I would ask the question, like when you're going through that, what are you, what is it reinforcing to you that they're trying to prove? Like, what are they needing to validate about themselves as psychologists that they're needing to, like, create this academic system that validates this sense of importance? Or, yeah, what, what, what do you take away from that? Yeah, that that test was created by white men and tested on white men yeah. and then used yeah. for a whole yeah. different patient population and used to pathologize people and to look at your certain inkblot and say, well, well, that's because you have this sort of tendency. And I'm just like, what the? Yes. Are you kidding and it, me? And it's about, the, it's about, like, the needing to, like, I'm, I'm, I'm important and, and I'm saying this thing that is valid and, and meaningful to you. And it's like, I also I like, I love the fun fact that Freud did a lot of psychedelics. Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> I mean, right? Like, so we're going to talk about like psychology. Like they were not fucking, like, they were doing a lot of, there was a lot of opium. There was a lot of Dilaudid. There was a lot of psychedelics. There was a lot of like cocaine. Like there's a lot of like, they're tripping and be like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to give you my opinions about the world. And because I have power and money and class and access, my opinions somehow become a book and become valid. Mm-hmm. It's like, like, how often do we think about like the person who gets to write the book you know, is the one that like is teaching this thing when it's like, we're just, we're just, we're trying to be fucking demons and trying to be in our experience. And like, uh, I said this, like this tech event this week that was like, I'm trying to do some like networking for this um, Web3 project I'm trying to build. And this, this tech bro was like, had this, what in this rant about how our cities are just designed, designed around car manufacturers and cars are really the reason why our cities are the way they are. And I was like, do you ever think about there being more systemic issues beyond like car manufacturers, like like the idea that the American dream was sold to us as a marketing scheme to like suppress and control us and like isolate us out of communities and out of belonging and out of um, women achieving more power? And but it was like 
people get so narrowly focused on like this one thing is going is, is is a truth and it's usually around like their own experience versus like here's someone else's fucking story here's someone else's like experiences and words and like and therapy is a great place to like of all the fields that we're going to liberate from patriarchal capitalist systems why not fucking clinical systems like it like we're, we're literally our values are aligned with equity justice care for all identity like let's fucking do that mm-hmm. yeah and that's why i think i come back to that question of how right like how 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 do we do that and again it's something that I don't have the answer for. And I think, you know, people like us will continue to push and to think about that and try and rework the systems and also trying to have some sort of grounding for the reality that it's not going to change overnight as much as we dream of this world of it not being like this. And like, yeah, like, how do we take care of ourselves? What is it they're saying, like fighting within the system and against at the same time? And like, how do you do that in a way that allows you, you know, as as a warrior in that space? to take care of yourself and do good work i mean oh yeah it's hard yeah this is an unpopular answer but i mean part of it is we we stop doing it in the way that we're doing it and we and we we change it you know we we don't feed insurance companies we don't feed corporate mental health you know we don't participate in mental health that's oppressive like we don't feed systems and models and tools and um and academia even you know like we we, there's so many so many aspects of the clinical systems that are oppressive and, and perpetuate the same harms you yeah. know that um that we're trying to learn so that we're, we're trying to shift and and being honest with our clients being really direct about what we have to do and why we have to do it i mean super basic i mean not mandated or not doing mandatory reporting anymore like mandatory reporting is harmful and and harms families and harms people so there's so many other strategies to protect children and protect survivors and, and, and prevent harm that is not mandatory reporting. So, you know, like, like there's really basic shit we can do differently as a field and we can work together on coming up with new strategies that are actually like community-based responses that are actually like rooted in what's good for people. When I talk to therapists, I often hear this response of like, well, this is what I'm supposed to be, supposed to do. I'm terrified of losing my license. I'm terrified of liability. Have we really designed a career and a, a career on helping people based entirely around liability management? Like we're not in a, we're not in risk aversive, like insurance systems. We're not a, we're not lawyers. We're not police, which what a big problem we run into with sex work monitoring. People like think they need to report their clients for doing sex work. I'm like, what? what? Remember, yeah, I've heard some therapists that they're supposed to like, well, if your client's doing something illegal, like what are you that supposed to do? That is not at all what's within the ethic code at all. Not even close. Totally. But therapists are often afraid that if they know their clients are doing something illegal, that they should report it. And it's like, you're not a fucking like meet up and deputized. Yeah. like yeah problematic police force to like report your like marginalized client for something totally. because you have a little like you have a little think about it like that's your shit to move through yes like, so it's interesting like like, like therapists changing our reference point to like if we're every day we're afraid of liability management and that's that's how we like perform this job like we're not doing it well and we're not serving our clients well well totally as someone who's been making this podcast, the amount of things I've said on this podcast that I've been like, oh shit, what happens if I lose? Like, and my supervisor is like, maybe you don't get your license. Maybe you don't do it because of that. Because apparently even if you, even if you let your license fault um, and you no longer act, like keep it activated with all of the education requirements, you can still be held liable as someone who has a license. So I was like, oh shit, maybe I don't want to get my license because I can't just like recommend things to people because of the framework. Like, and especially it comes a lot with psychedelic stuff and like what I know to be truth with these things and within the system that we have. And I'm just like, I can't speak the truth. I can't speak the truth. 
I, I keep my license that I can do um, supervision for people. That's like currently like the only strategy that I'm keeping. I, but I'm definitely of the, of the, of the ilk that like I'm sure at some point I'm going to have it revoked by someone for some reason. So this fucking job that this recent job that's that fired me, um, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're threatening to report my license to the board. Another like nail in the coffin of this bullshit from this company. And it was like the, the reason why they are they're coming after me and like all the ways they are is because I was pushing back on their bullshit. I was challenging racist, transphobic, sexist things in the company. And like when you challenge the patriarchy, they react more strongly because they're threatened to lose their power and they, yeah. they, they and they push back. And like I'm happy to be out of that system, but I'm also like deeply saddened that it is harming children in the, in the process. Yeah. If you're comfortable for the listener, could you just like include them in on what that was? Yeah. Yeah. I was a clinical director for a um, adolescent residential treatment center. I worked in residential before and it's it, residential is an t- entirely toxic system, but I also needed to navigate capitalism. And I was like, I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be, I'm going to bring in sex and gender work. I'm going to talk about liberation work. I'm going to create a system where they feel safe and connected. I'm going to do trauma-based work in residential. Um, and this is in California. Um, in a private company pretty quickly from like day one, they, they were reacting to, you know, they knew who I was and what I did. They were reacting to um, me facilitating groups that were sex and gender related. So they told me I couldn't do groups anymore. Um, they told me that I was turning the kids trans um, and the parents were going to be mad that the conservative families weren't ready for that kind of change. Um, they wouldn't allow the, the buildings themselves to be um, gender um, shifted so they they required kids to be living in facilities based on what their assigned gender at birth was they weren't able to be like living wow. in homes with other kids they were aligned with so this constant pushback um but i just kept trying to like figure out my strategies all, all the trauma-based approaches that i created were destroyed or not allowed yeah. to be enacted because they didn't fall within their systems um so i mean i was just doing the best i could with one-on-one work and um, i had a private therapy session with a client where we um where she'd been sexually assaulted many times and we were talking about like how do you manage that? And how do you manage arousal and desire? And, and, and in a, in a conversation, it came down to like, she didn't understand her own body. She didn't understand mm. what she liked. She didn't know how to have pleasure in her sexual experiences. So, so sex was about attention. It was about belonging. It was about being wanted. Yeah. She didn't actually like or feel good in any of the experiences. Cool. So I was like, I'm going to, let's do some really basic sex ed. So I brought in my vulva puppet. puppet. I'm going to show this yeah, to you. Yeah, totally. Open. I brought in a vulva puppet. That's a really yes. beautiful, like, absolutely and it gives you like structures and you can talk about it i did like a five minute like little basics that i said this is how your body works this is what your body needs when your body's giving you this cue this might be what it means this is how you set a boundary when somebody's pushing you this is what you um this is how to ask for what you might like how this is how you might explore what you might like super basic sex that i would give to a 10 year old probably you know as young as a a child as young as 10 um she told someone else in the facility um just as like a like a nice thing. She was like, oh, I got to have this thing with, with Angie. Like, you know, that she was excited about it. And some other staff reported me. And the next day I had like mob squad style. These guys in my office took my laptop, took my phone, deleted all my content, all the work I had created. I sorted me out. No goodbye to the clients, no transition to the community, no goodbye to my staff. I was leading, facilitating supervision for three other staff, escorted me out of the building and um, wrote, wrote me a letter um, saying that I was um, in violation of my ethics because I was teaching children to pleasure themselves. And then um, it said they're going to file a board complaint against me. In California. I don't have any words. And I'm a certified sex therapist with like years of experience. Like this is my actual expertise. If I can't do basic sex ed in a private therapy session with a teenager who's being sexually assaulted, like what other answer would I have had for this kid? I keep thinking about that actually. It's like, oh, um, what, what else could I have said to this person, right? Like, oh, maybe in a year you can get some sex ed when you leave the facility. 
Like there's no other ethical answer I could have given her besides healthy, supportive sex ed that would teach her how to have control over her body and autonomy and access to her own pleasure. And like the most devastating thing for me about the situation is she's going to go away thinking that what she said was bad or what she did was bad. She's going to be reinforced that she can't talk about sex. She can't talk Mm. about her experiences. She can't get help because it led to somebody, somebody being terminated because she talked about it again. And like, she was terrified to share with me in the first place. And it was Mm. like me saying, this is a safe space for you. This is a place you get to be. This is a place you get to work through and we can help you. You can go back to your life and have healthy relationships and sex someday. Actually, it's not true when you're in the mental health system as a teenager. Yeah, devastating. And I didn't get to be, just even be like, it's not your fault. You're doing your best. Like, I, I wanted to get, and I'm sure my colleagues, I hope my colleagues did that on my behalf because yeah. I, like, I, like, I didn't have any legal recourse to like have any conversation with them. I couldn't like, um, even just a goodbye, I like couldn't, the company wasn't going to let me. So it, yeah, it was really sad, devastating. It's horrendous is what it is. And that's just like basic, that's like basic mental health. But reinforce like why we don't, don't want to work in the systems and why the systems are toxic and bad. Right, right. Because I think they're like, oh, it's a child. You can't talk about that stuff. But the reality is this child has been sexually assaulted. This is a part of the conversation. And they're coming to me with it. It was like I volunteered and it was like this kid being like, what do I do with all this arousal and desire and like difficulty I'm having? Like, what do I like? What is this about? I'm like, this is your actual job. Like, right. 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 Not to say, sorry, you're too young for this conversation and just leave them. What? And on top of that, all of the we know, even through this conversation, what we've talked about, the attachment that occurs and for them to completely shut you off with no termination from the rest of your clients, that is causing harm. Like I, I straight up feel the unethicalness of even that. Yeah, it was so harmful. It was so sad. I like think about this client all the time and just like wishing I could have just, you know, said goodbye. So like, you're important. You're doing your best. You're like, you're on this journey together. And I didn't get to like, yeah, so, so unethical, but it's like private mental health is that way because they see it as a company versus a clinical experience. You know, they're, they're not, the company doesn't abide by therapy ethics. The company is not, uh, isn't, isn't rooted in ethics. The company is on some fuck shit about money. And like the week before this happened, they had just been bought out by a capital investment, by, a, by an equity firm from the East Coast. So I'm sure somebody had like, probably did Googled me and decided I was too edgy for them and they wanted a strategy to fire me. That's that's my like <clears throat> sneaking suspicion that there was some other reason that they like didn't like, because I was out about doing sex work to them. They knew I, they knew that I had some sex work experience. I wasn't doing it as like deeply at the time, but. I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me for something like that for them to try and push you out because of these things. Yeah. Anyone who listens to this, I would love to like maybe write something. I'm just not the super great at the like a much better verbal communicator. So, but I, I, I'm, but I'd, I'd love to like do a little like further d- deep diving into like can children get any help with sexuality in, in mental health spaces and like so I, I've been, I know as I know in schools they can't talk about it like teachers and like guidance counselors are very much like they can't have basic sex ed conversations um you know clinicians are if they're in an organization they're not allowed to talk about it like where do kids get the help then and they're not have some great resources but also some bad ones and so like what do we do to like hopefully the kids on TikTok are giving each other good information because I don't know where else they're going to get it Right. And the reality that you still, even with that, you need a relationship to be able for that kid to, to say what they feel about that or, or any sort totally. any sort of give and back and take and being able to have that safe space to talk about that. One of our basic bodily autonomies, pleasure, and especially with children who have been sexually assaulted. It's insane. There's a ton of like good like sex ed content out there, but like it's all being shadow, but shadow bans. So, like it's really hard for like the educators that I know are doing amazing work and yet they can't get promotions. They, they're getting banned, they're getting blocked, they're getting, you know, 
there's currently like a global effort to like try to ban sex on the internet and like a, mostly funded by the by the religious right. Um, I'm writing a post about that or doing a post about that, but like the organizations that are funding um, anti-trans bills are the same ones that are funding anti-abortion stuff or the same ones that are funding anti-porn and anti-sex content. And, and the anti-porn, the anti-sex word content on the internet is the same content that's anti-sex ed. And so it, it's the same people that are pushing it. And so it's, it's in some ways, like support for sex work online is also support for all sexuality education and resourcing online. It's, it's, it, our, our interests are really well aligned. And so I think a lot about like, how do we work together mm-hmm. as educators and sex workers to get access to spaces mm-hmm. to teach and to give content in like open, expressive ways that people would desperately need because they're not getting it anywhere else. Yes. And if only those people could relax, the people that are fighting could relax a little bit to open up and ask themselves with curiosity, why does this make me so uncomfortable? Why do I have to scream and try and fight and control other people, especially in a country that's founded on liberation, which we obviously have to be very clear, no, it is not. But like the people who are spouting that information are always about liberation, liberation, freedom, freedom, freedom. We know it's not, but the reality is, what the fuck? You're over here being like control. And I'm just like, you don't add up. You don't add up at all. And according and like researchers has found that those same people are the ones that are most often closeted homophobic, homophobic by closeted gay, closeted trans, closeted secret fetishists. Like they're, they're always the ones that are like the most like shame based and are the ones that are the most virulently like angry. And it's like, just like deal with their shit and find a way to express it. And like, let's like give you a pathway to your weird fetish. Like, cool, let's, I'll work on that with you. If you're a religious right person listening to this and you're afraid, like, DM me. We'll, we'll we'll have a session. I'll help you get access to that shit because it's it's like work through it. Don't like don't hurt anybody else in the process of your own bullshit. Or they are um, definitely afraid of this. Like it's going to change the structure of my family or my life or my belief, my my meaning or belonging. This came up a lot during the like anti um, Roe versus Wade stuff that was happening mm. um, more recently. And I had heard this conversation with a conservative um, person, like a voter, and she was like, "My whole church decided this is what we're going to vote for, and I can't lose them." She said she said this on NPR, and I was like, I was like, this is this is what it is, right? You are you would lose belonging if you and your and belonging is so deeply important, and I, and then in group belonging has been tied now to this like political platforms that are about autonomy, which is another tool of the patriarchy to like yeah. force and control to make a political platform about uh, like moral or bodily autonomy issue um, about con- it's about control. It's another strategy to control, not actually they don't give a shit about babies or about my body or about trans kids. Like they don't care. No, so it's about control and power and coercion. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. and it's a great tool to get people enraged and to have a point for mm-hmm. them to come around together and do exactly that, where this is what I need to vote for. This is the politician totally. that I need to support because it is this really tender issue totally. that I can build a whole platform around. The people who are running this at the top know exactly what they're doing. There was that um, documentary, I think it was called Defending Roe. I've mentioned this before on the podcast that like talked about how the first places to give abortion um, in America were Catholic churches. And I, I was so yeah. dumbfounded to find that out. I was like, when, 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 when yeah. did this become so like right? The, yes. But it was like the 80s. Like it's not that long ago that like, 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 like Reagan was one of the first who said like, we should make the, we should make the abortion issue the polarity. Like they just, it was a, it was a political decision. It was very. There was abortion rights active from both sides of the of the, of the aisle previously, I so it was a, it was a del- deliberate. Like let's yeah, and, and then it speaks to the, the sex related stuff. It's like the people who are um, very anti like 
sex and access to sex on the internet, access to education on the internet, yeah. are also the ones that are not giving any sex ed to their children. And those children are being sexually assaulted. And so there's, I think, if anything, we could get motivation in the fact that, like, you are not talking about it with your kid. They're being sexually assaulted in schools. They're being sexually assaulted by their neighbors, by their teachers, by their whoever, because they're not getting basic help to how their body works, how, I mean, everyone benefits from information about how to keep yourself safe, how to understand what you want and what you need. Anti-sexual assault work starts with a sex education and starts yes. with like providing everyone with tools to understand that sex is about pleasure and that sex is about connection, that sex is about belonging. And it's not about the ways that like it is being used as coercion and power. Like going back to my first statement in this podcast, like yeah. being commodified as a child wasn't that okay, especially in a church that like would say I needed to dress pretty. Like my fundamentalist church was like, you need to look, you need to look pretty, you need to look good for the Lord. Um, but you can't be too revealing. And they like, it was a very like strict dress code, but it, but then I was like complimented and like touched and like appreciated by all the men in the church for like having, for meeting that like very specific, like pure, um, pretty niche for them that then they could like, like please sing for us and dance for us and like perform a little show to prove that we're doing that we're like, that you're like, you're pleasing to God, which this happens a lot in the Mormon church, like be the most pretty to get the most planets. Um, you know, be, Please the universe by being this thing, but then don't use your sexuality for your own pleasure or your own good or your own expression. Right. Right. And I call that trauma. Mm -hmm. Totally. It's deep. Yeah. And it, it was interesting. It came up in one of my group classes, like that idea of like, what do you do when you have a client who's in it? You know, you have a, a client who's, um, who's queer, who's in the Mormon church, who wants to come out but knows it's not safe but wants to stay in the church and like how do you support that person I don't know I think I have a really hard time with that one because I see it as a reenactment patriarchal structures that have taught and I call it abusive when you come to a space I, where oh. your authentic self your identity that you were born with is yeah. sinful and wrong and unacceptable if this was any other dynamic where it was a relationship and then someone was telling me, oh, you know, my partner says that I am unacceptable for who I am, I would say, that sounds a little abusive. Uh, how do you feel about that? You know what I mean? And so it's just so interesting to me that within this society of like religious um, religion and all these other pieces, we're so soft about the reality that these are abusive structures. For people who are queer, for people who are trans, for anybody that deserves pleasure in their body, especially the Mormon church, which says that you can't masturbate by yourself without that being a sin. Oh, my God. Right. That is not OK. Totally. But then it goes back to the, the statement we made a few minutes ago, which is like that is true. It is abusive. It is trauma. But like it is threatening belonging. And so like yeah, the, 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 I know the, having lived, I lived in Idaho briefly, like I talked to a lot of Mormon folks and I saw some clients there where it was like. The risk of like losing, like, there are really enmeshed supportive communities. Totally, like, I know. Potlucks and houses and like totally, and like they take good care of each other. So yes, and I, and I experienced that in my cult. The most closest I've ever had in the community was in the cult. It was like I felt somebody showed up for me all the time. Like there was just belonging, and so the the fear of like I'm not going to belong anywhere else. Like what if we created more spaces for belonging in our world, more ways that people felt deeply enmeshed, like community and belonging, where they don't need those spaces. That's not the only option they have for that. Yeah, um, because it's, it's such a they can't imagine a life without their family, their communities, their yes. this thing that they do deeply want. And like if your identities are in conflict with the belonging that you deeply value, it's like you're willing to sacrifice anything. I, I think about in abusive relationships I've been in where I will completely disavow all these parts of myself to maintain belonging with a person who's created a dynamic of abuse um, who requires that of me. And it's it's 
it speaks to the same pattern, right? That we um, we deeply want, yeah. we will put the collective before ourselves when it feels life-threatening. And with trauma, it always feels life-threatening. Yep. Yep. And then this is why you see a lot of cases when my supervisors had worked in Utah and just saw like wild cases of very like immobile children who couldn't even move their bodies from the the Mormon church and things. Just when you think about the level of shame and restriction and all of that, we see that come out in various, you know, physical disorders. And so it's just it's it's wild to me. I, I, I personally can't stay silent about this. This is a huge yeah. piece of what I'm passionate about talking about. Totally. It sounds like what you're passionate about talking about, because I think as people who have lived it, been in it, see it, my family's still in it. Totally. I'm yeah. not going to stay silent. And I also just want to take a moment to call out the reality that you getting fired there, that is such an act of activism. And I am so happy to hold this space for you for what you did for that person. And the mm-hmm. amount of people who have gone through centuries before who have been in jail who have been banned for all of the things that we look back and think we needed that at that time that's the work that you're doing and it might not feel like that when we get those fires but like you're doing that work yeah totally yeah yeah Yeah, and i I think it's i mean anyone who knows me in my real life like knows i'm not very good at being silent about anything so like the minute I like something's uncomfortable or something isn't good like I'm gonna be like I'm gonna be really clear but not but I wasn't always that way right like I was a silent demure you know I was a perfect princess in in the cult perfect straight A's perfect performance like missionary like I did I was a perfect housewife I was a perfect everything for this cult this cult and then the masking at its like highest level and what it what it did was tell me that I didn't have value so being perfect being perfect meant that like I didn't get to exist I didn't get to be myself. I didn't get to have words. I didn't get to have feelings. I didn't get to have art. I didn't get to have play. I didn't get to have pleasure. And it was like, I still feel guilt and shame receiving pleasure. And it's been, Ooh, you know, yeah, almost 20 years. I still feel this, like, I am bad to be receiving. If someone's like just going down on me and I'm like laying splayed open, there's like this, like, I should be doing something. What am I supposed to, am I doing a good job? Like that, like that inner narrative is so intense still, even when yeah. I'm like, even if it's a sub that I'm dominating and I'm like do this fucking thing for me but I'm still like is it okay like yeah. it's like so deeply embedded in like my body that I don't get to have if I'm expressing myself I don't get to belong and I'm clearly fucking it up oh yes yeah yes and then and I'm working through it I'm actively fucking doing it every day to practice like receiving and lately what I've been doing is on dating when I meet people on dating apps I just make them fist me and then they, then I have them leave so I just I just receive and I don't do, I do anything back and I'm like yes we can play Yes. I will teach you to fist me. I'm giving you a skill. Yes. And then you can go about your way and see you later. Great. And that's healing. The more times you do that, the more times we can just receive and and change yeah. that that narrative and make new neuronal patterns. But yeah, the reality is that is deep. And I just, I see you yeah. in that and the feelings Thank with you. that and that experience and how deep that can be. And that's, man, that is yeah. a huge part of why I run this podcast. That is a huge part. Well, maybe we have a whole other episode on culture. That would be kind of fun. Yeah, yeah totally. I'm, I've been working on some content and things, but yeah, you're, you seem better at getting shit done than I am. So maybe we can. My goal is to run some purity culture recovery groups. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely like you to not too. Well, I want to hold a little bit of space as we come towards the end of our conversation in case there was anything lingering. I know we hit so many good things and yeah. I feel so seen in this conversation with where I'm at. I've been having some real strong frustration with the system 
especially the training that I'm getting and all of this. Right. And so it felt really nice to be met in this moment when half the time I'm in class is going, what the fuck am I learning? Yeah. Why is it this? Totally. Yeah. If I can get it, maybe my last reflection is just on that. Like, so if you're, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a therapist student, you're a, you're a new therapist, you're somebody navigating that, like, I think know that you're seeing, know that you're not, your reactions to the systems are real. And the people that have to teach those programs, the people that have to like, the people that benefit from those systems perpetuating, like are sometimes good people, but just are are not able to do the kind of dismantling work that we can start doing as a field um, and know that like your truth is real, like your authentic experience of something being wrong or bad is real. And like, listen to that and own that and like speak that into the spaces. Like, you know, I went through a, um, a, a supervisory training program with the AMFT um, and the teacher of the course was racist, like kept saying racist things in the AMFT, like teacher of the supervisory training. And we called him out on it. We, I wrote letters to this, to the board. We've addressed it. He still teaches it every, uh, every session. He's still, and it's like, there's an example of like the systemic oppression in the, in the, in the organizations themselves. He's really toxic and bad. And the more that we, as the new therapists coming in, are like, we're not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. We don't want to be a part of your organizations. We don't want to, we don't want to support this. We, or we want to like change them. We're going to actually shift. Um, the gatekeeping systems. We're going to shift the systems of oppression and the teaching. We're going to shift the content of these systems. We're not going to yeah. take courses that are that are not aligned. Like we have a lot of power and we have a lot of ability to um, shift the ways that we are engaging and shift the ways you show up with clients. Like you have you you alone in your client session, you can be grounded and and based in ethics. It's not about you. It's about the client well being. Um, you're watching your own responses. You're careful what you're sharing, but show up with that fucking person, no matter what kind of system you're in. And when you can't, don't do it. Just take, take the day off and don't push yourself beyond. Listen to your own internal. I mean, you, you know this from doing psychedelic work. Like you have to stay aligned with your internal voice and your internal, like with the information the universe is giving you, wherever that information is coming from. Because the more you move out of alignment of that, the more harm you do to yourself and other people. And that's yes. when anytime therapists have done something sketchy to a client, whenever there's sexual assault in therapy, it's because the therapist is not grounded and connected, not getting expression, not in their own relationships, not getting their needs met. It's because therapists aren't doing their fucking work and therapists need to do better. It is not just sexual transference is a problem. Sexual transference happens every fucking day. Clients will always have arousal and and attraction and desire because you're a safe person they're connecting with. How do you talk directly about it and how do you manage your own shit? So you're getting your needs met and your client isn't the only person that's reflecting back to you positive regard that week. Yes. Can I just drop the mic? Like, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. it has been a pleasure i still have one question to ask you that i ask every person on the podcast and it is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal well i would argue that normal doesn't exist so (laughs) normative word i feel like Um, this has become a secret test for every anarchist on the show the amount of people who come back and push (laughs) out passed you passed i'm just kidding (laughs) um no, I mean, I think it's, I would say that like uh, in, the, in the sex in the sex therapy realm, like that your sexual desires, what you want as a sexual being can be an anchor to your life. You can, you can choose your relationships, your living space, your whole life can be anchored around what you want sexually. And, and, and that, that being a driving force and a justifiable reason to choose partnerships that are primarily sexually driven partnerships and lives that are sexually oriented. Like, and that being a valid, important part of expression, just as much as work or familial relationships or other parts, like it having just as much weight and power as other parts of identity. And what would it mean? What would need to shift in your life to give it that kind of power and weight mm-hmm. and expression and space? Yes. 
we're working on it. The spirituality of that too. I'm getting there, right? Like holding space for the power of what sex is and what it can be for us in our lives. And I don't even have words to follow that up. I really don't. That was beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thanks for chatting with me. And yeah, if if you want to ever have like a supervision session too, I'm always available for people. So yeah, if if folks are looking for me, um, Cyborg Dreams with a Z at the end is my um, social media. You can find all my links on um, both Instagram and TikTok under Cyborg Dreams. Yeah, I'm taking supervisory clients. I'm teaching some workshops. I'll post some things on there, doing some content. Go to Equitable Care Certification for information on the sex worker therapist certification. And if you have any therapist organizations that you work with, um, a group practice, any therapist bodies in your school, in your communities, you're working at the APA, um, and you want us to come and teach for you, we will come and teach you, teach the full 12 course series, um, or we are having recordings we'll have available. Um, we have cohorts. You can send all of your te- all of your team to a cohort and do the trainings with us. We want to get as many folks as possible trained, and we're also doing some training the trainers if folks want to learn to do the trainings for us. We can expand to many more therapists. So thank you, Paul. You're doing such powerful work. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.